You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. A very good evening to you and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. This program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8, and in it I talk to someone who's a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. My guest in tonight's program is Mark Rosen. And first, I'm just going to greet him. Welcome. Thanks, Richard. Really nice to be with you on the show. It's very nice to have you on the show. And then uh, perhaps I'll tell you a little about him, and then he'll tell you more about himself. Uh, He comes from Queenstown in the Eastern Cape. Yay! Someone else from the Eastern Cape. He was at school at Queen's College in Queenstown, and then he went to UCT and also to WITS. At the moment, he is CEO of SAMRO. And perhaps uh, you can just tell us what that means and what it is that you do. Sure. Uh, you know, SAMRO is a collecting society which collects royalties from a, a number of sources, radio stations, television stations, live performance venues, restaurants, dentists, waiting rooms. And it distributes that music according to a usage formula and algorithm to composers who write that music. So we collect, spend a year collecting and collating information, and then the next year we pay it out to composers all around the world, members of our society and then uh, sister societies all around the world. But you've come to this via various other things in life. Uh, You've practiced law. You were a member of uh, Bell, and Hall attorneys. Um, But you've always been interested in media and entertainment, I think. You know, Richard, I I know guests on your show before have said that they are frustrated or failed musicians, and I am too. You know, I dropped out of university during my BA to become a jazz guitar player and had very lofty ambitions. Uh, And I think it's one of the most sensible things my father ever did as a parent. He said, if you finish your BA, my son, I will subsidize you one year of jazz tuition. Uh, so I, I took up that offer because I couldn't afford to to pay for it myself um, and um, decided that I would uh, finish my BA. And then I traveled around the world, went to New York, uh, went to all the jazz clubs there and realized within a couple of days I didn't have the talent or the inclination uh, or the ability and um, had to do something. So I became a lawyer. And I became a music lawyer, media lawyer, entertainment lawyer. Those are my key areas of interest. And that's how it started for me. And that's because you love the music. Yeah. I have two big passions uh, in life. Music has been a passion since l- literally three years old. I, uh, I used to go to the one record shop in Queenstown. And I used to, before I could read, I used to select seven singles by the color of the label. And then uh, when the Beatles released Please Please Me, it must have, I must have been about five, uh, bought my first LP or my parents bought it for me. And it's been a love affair with music, which has been a deep passion and a deep interest uh, for many years, 55 years. And um, so music's the number one passion and the number two ash- passion is art, I suppose. But that's a much more recent uh, passion. So the music runs deep and long and, and I've been a big, big fan a minor player, um, and and really try to contribute through entertainment law for for my career. And now you're in the business of looking after 
musicians, really, and composers. So when I was a lawyer, I, I used to represent both sides of the table. I represented many musicians, and I represented record companies. I learned a lot about the business by doing that. And uh, I had, uh, I'd been in a, a media job, which I guess we'll get to during the course of the interview. But uh, I left that job about a year, just over a year ago. And then I got a call from Nick Maweni, the chairman of Samro, who asked if I would come and help write the ship and get it sailing in the right direction. It had been through some rather traumatic times. It'd been a, it was not a well-run organization. And uh, because of my operational experience in the corporate world, which I'd had in the last 10 years, they, they identified me and thought I should come and help them. And after some reluctance, I, I decided to take the job. I've taken it for two years, and I'm trying to turn that organization around. Now, when we come to your choices of music, uh, maybe we should listen to your first choice, and then you can talk about this, because it seems you struggled to reduce it to 15 pieces, which is what I asked you for. So let's listen to your first choice, which is the Beatles. You mentioned them just now. This is Eleanor Rigby, and here it comes. That was the first choice of Mark Rosen, who's my guest in People of Note, Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Now, you told me that you had a tough job reducing it to 15 of your favorite pieces. Uh, you know, Richard, this is one of the most traumatic things that, uh, that I've ever had to do. Uh, I've been listening intensely to music for 55 years. Uh, I think I had to leave out about 15 genres. Right? So there was no place for ranges of music that I love. There's no place for a, a country song, uh, electronic music, ambient music, world music. Um, there was no space for funk or punk. So there were whole big swathes of music that I couldn't even get to because I was trying to debate, what do I choose? Do I choose 15 songs that I love? Do I choose the 15 best songs that I've ever heard? Do I choose 15 songs that listeners of Classic FM will be able to deal with on a Sunday night? And I think that was about my only qualifier that, you know, I would probably have chosen a Led Zeppelin song for another circumstance. But you know, Sunday night on Classic 1027, I think probably the wrong choice. So at least I was able to exclude maybe 5,000 songs. But I, I started this process, I probably got to about 50. And then I had to start whittling it down. And it was just an amazingly difficult experience. I got to 25 songs, then I got to 19 songs. And I started asking friends what to do. I didn't know that. Someone said I should put 15 names into a hat and draw them out, oh, 19 names into a hat, draw out the first four and discard them. It was very difficult um, because I love so much music and such a wide range. Uh, the, the, the Beatles, the song I chose, I chose because of the show. It's not necessarily my favorite Beatles song. I do love it. I love the, the string arrangement, the cello-violin combination that, that was engineered by George Martin. The, the version that I chose was from a Cirque du Soleil musical, actually, called Love. It wasn't the Beatles' original, which, which was off Revolver. And Revolver was the first big change in the way in which the Beatles recorded. It was, it was a much more interesting approach to studio recording. I think it was about 1966. Uh, it's a McCartney song. Uh, much more melody driven than pop or rock driven and you know the Beatles were I suppose the first big inspiration for me as a kid I think I, I think I was brought up on Beethoven's fifth or ninth when I was in the womb but I, I don't remember any of that but certainly do remember Elvis, Cliff, um, uh, Bill Haley 
all of those things before the Beatles arrived. And when, when, that, when the Beatles arrived, it totally changed my life. When you were growing up, you, you talked there about Beethoven. Uh, were your family musical? I had a grandmother and a great aunt who were supposed to have been concert-level pianists in uh, Lithuania, where my family came from. I never heard them play at all. In terms of my parents, neither of them were musicians. Uh, They were both pretty tone deaf, but they certainly both had a love of music. My mother was a huge Frank Sinatra fan, and my father loved anything with a beat. So I I was brought up in a household where music was playing, but certainly not the kind of level or passion that I developed for it over the years. And just in passing, you mentioned Cirque du Soleil, and I noticed that this week they went into liquidation. Uh, And that's another 3,000 or something artists out of work now. This is quite serious. You know, Cirque du Soleil was another life-changing theatrical experience, the way that they combined a circus with music uh, and acrobatics was just something which I saw in the first time for the first time in the 90s it was a revolutionary experience for me and a a really great ensemble I think I saw four or five of their shows uh, traveling around the world and what you say is testimony to the fact that COVID internationally has totally and utterly decimated the live entertainment industry at SAMRO we get daily requests from composers to help them, pay them advances on their royalties. Uh, The live venue situation looks to be closed, certainly for the foreseeable future. We don't see anything coming back before the end of the year. And as you will know, being a musician yourself, there there are no employees. You rely on your own entrepreneurial skill. You look for gigs. Uh, you, I suppose, are one of the more fortunate musicians in South Africa. You have a long reputation. Uh, but many musicians live from week to week, gig to gig, and that industry has been completely decimated. Uh, and it's really, really sad. So Cirque du Soleil, you know, of course, that's, that's Canada, Can- French, Canada uh, French Canada, but South Africa, the situation is dire. Yeah. Well... Talking of revival and when we might come back, your next choice is Creedence Clearwater Revival and Midnight Special. Just let's listen to it and then you can talk to us about it. Midnight Special. You know, Richard, I was the first ever member of the Creedence Clearwater Revival fan club in South Africa. I I was 10. I saw an advert in a music paper. I used to get the music papers from England every week. I used to run down to the CNA uh, I did part-time jobs to to pay for them. They were six weeks out of date because they'd come via surface mail. And I saw an ad um, asking me to send a self-addressed envelope to some address in, in America, which I did. Uh, and I got back, uh, I think I paid $2 a year or whatever it was, photographs and memorabilia and stuff about Credence. I think that John Fogarty was just one of the most fabulous uh, guitar players and songwriters of the uh, rock and roll era. Um, Midnight Special was one of the tracks on Willie and the Poor Boys, which was one of three albums, three number one albums released in 1969. So it was a big year for me. I was 10 or 11. And, uh, and Midnight Special, a great song about a, a train taking uh, prisoners to, to jail. 
and it's, it has such a warm sound, such a great vibrato on the guitar. Uh, he's got such a powerful voice. Green's just a great band. And to this day, when I'm asked who my you know, 10 favorite bands are, of which I've had to probably leave seven or eight out of this list, regrettably, uh, Creedence always factor in there. So that's why, that's why I chose them. I can see you've been traumatized by making this list. You have absolutely, you have absolutely <laughs> no idea. No idea. I mean, when I think of you know, what I left off in, you know, out of rock or out of jazz or out of vocalists, um, oh, it's been terrible. I, you know, every moment since, since you asked me to do this has been completely taken up by this. And, of course, the question is, you know, are, are the tunes right? Are there disappointments? Are they the right choices? Uh, it's been a f- it's been a fabulous exercise. You know, I- I'm much more interested in talking about the music than I am about myself. I think the music is obviously much more interesting, but uh, I know we've got to do both those things tonight. Yeah. And so once you'd um, decided that this, uh, having done your jazz um, career, uh, you wanted to go into law, you then came back to South Africa and went to Wits, did you? Yes, that's right. So I... Um, I, st- I did a BA in Cape Town. I then travelled, uh, failed uh, as a as a as a musician, uh, and then came back to Wits. And however, more. as failing, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but failing as a musician, you obviously heard a huge amount of music. Yeah, I heard a huge amount of music across all genres uh, while I travelled. Uh, everything from Dire Straits and the Police to John McLaughlin uh, and John Abercrombie, who live. are two of my you yes, heard them all live, live, yeah, two of my guitar heroes I suppose uh, and again on the list of music tonight n- not one guitar hero so in the jazz world seven or eight guitar players you know I could have chosen 15 Miles Davis songs and been happy or 15 Bob Dylan songs or 15 by jazz guitar players or you know there could have been many I could have just chosen 15 and been really happy so anyway uh, I came back to South Africa and uh, I wasn't sure what to do I wanted to really be a, a music and a film writer that was my real interest but um, those jobs were scarce cadet journalism at the Rand Daily Mail was coming to an end and uh, what was left for me someone said well you got the gift of the gab you love music why don't you become a music lawyer I didn't even know what that was so I went to Wits uh, as an older more mature student studied law and then went to this firm called Belduer and Hall because they were a media law firm. They used to represent all the foreign news agencies in South Africa at a very turbulent political time. They did a lot of political work, uh, and they used to represent the odd musician and playwright, the odd record company, and I identified them, and I made a beeline for that firm. Luckily, I was able to get articles there, and uh, not long into my articles, uh, we were in one of those kind of meetings you see in, in L.A. law where all the lawyers are around a table. And uh, one of the partners said, uh, who knows anything about music law? And I put up my hand. I said, I do. Now, this was the days before the Internet. I, I couldn't go home and research on the weekend. And they said, well, what do you know? So I said, anything you need me to know, I know. They said, OK, are, are you ready to travel to New York? I said, sure. <laughs> and the gig was that Mbongeni and Gemma, who wrote Serafina, was doing a deal with Island Records at the time to release Serafina. And he needed representation in New York to help him do that deal. And uh, I was the guy who was selected. And if you think choosing the songs for tonight was traumatic, you must know, as a young professional lawyer, first big job, absolutely clueless, Going into the shark tank of New York to negotiate with Island Records uh, was a real trauma. 
But I, I got there, and uh, at the bottom of Island Records, which is situated on the corner of 4th and Broadway in Manhattan, was Tower Records, the record shop. So I dedicated most of my time to buying records, bought time with a very, very politically astute business affairs guide, Island Re- uh, Records, managed to buy myself some time to do the necessary research. And that's kind of where my uh, music law career started. When I was there, uh, Mbongeni introduced me to Hugh Masekela. Uh, who, of course, was was an idol and an icon, not so much because of his music, but because of his uh, role in, in, the, in the exile movement. And uh, I then became a music lawyer, which was uh, in the late 80s. But that's interesting because music and politics have been very together in South Africa over the years. And I see one of your uh, things that you did do was to represent detainees also during the state of emergency. Were these necessarily musicians as well, or was this just sort of arbitrary? No. It, it, the, the fact of the South African entertainment law market, I suppose, is that it was very small at that point. Uh, there was not a lot of work. And uh, in the law firm that I worked, the media department did everything. It did entertainment, it did uh, newspapers, did magazines, but even that wasn't enough to sustain the department of the size that it was. So the other work we used to do was public interest work. And that was really an endless struggle with the government to try to have various regulations overturned. It was the time of very, very rampant detention without trial. And I worked in that department, so I, I kind of, moved between media and entertainment work and political work. There was no real overlap at that time. Of course, protest music has always been very uh, a very viable form of music in South Africa, but uh, there was no connection for me at the time. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that because music and politics are, are a very interesting combination. But your next choice is Ray Charles, Drown in My Own Tears. Ray Charles, Drown in My Own Tears. And with the current uh, Black Lives Matter situation going on, I, I'd be interested to know how many of these uh, are, are black musicians in this collection that you've chosen. But I mean, obviously here in South Africa, uh, musicians have been in the forefront of opposition to any government of the day, I think. And in those days that you're talking about also, a lot of music was banned. Did you deal with that? That's right. Well, first of all, it is interesting you ask that question because not only is there quite a lot of music by African-American musicians on my list, but there is quite an interesting move towards gospel and blues, which are both in a way manifestations of music of oppression um, or music that arose out of oppression, um, whether it's slavery or imprisonment or whatever it may have been. And um, that that happened quite per chance that the selection for tonight ended up having that kind of bent. But I suppose I have always been interested in the role that um, politics plays in music or music plays in politics. Um, I find these p- political movements quite interesting. But equally, I find interesting, you know, I, I had people coming to me at work over um, the Floyd killing and saying, well, we need to say something here at SAMRO. And I said, well, I think we probably do need to say something, but 
But what's interesting for me is that we've been in a state of lockdown in South Africa for many weeks. And South Africans have been killed in that process uh, through our own, whether it's the police or the military, uh, in circumstances which I, I don't comment on. But, but you guys aren't talking about that. You're looking at what's happening in America, and that's what you're choosing to reflect on, which also has something to say about, I suppose, cultural hegemony and the control of um, what is popular. You know, it comes out of America, and, and, and it's a determined narrative. And in a way, uh, South African people often don't reflect enough on their own circumstances, but choose rather to use international things to reflect on. So it is interesting. And, and of course, music has been a, a big vehicle for political commentary uh, for, for many years. Ray Charles, just a king of the blues, king of jazz, great voice, a fantastic song. The one I've chosen is a live version, which is very slow and pronounced, no dragging by the band. Just a really great song by a great composer and performer. And your next choice is Aretha Franklin, another powerful character. Um, I never loved a man the way I love you. Just tell us about that before we hear it. Well, that was interesting because that just came to me when I was listening to the Ray Charles song. And you've you've chosen to, to run these songs in the order that I chose them. And I wasn't particularly going for any particular kind of running order. But um, Aretha, too, you know, she was a, just a massive, massive soul voice. Possibly the best uh, soul voice in history. Uh, this is a great song recorded in the in the late seven uh, late sixties. I think when she just signed on at uh, at Atlantic Records. Just a, a personal favorite. I, I love Aretha. I listen to her most weeks of my life, and this is one of my favorite songs. Aretha Franklin. I never loved a man the way I love you. You mentioned there that you listen to music um, every week. And I guess you find the time to do that because it seems to me you're quite a busy person. When do you when do you find time to listen? So I listen to music every day. Do you, do you uh, listen while you work? I not? listen. I listen while I work in circumstances where the work doesn't require special concentration. If I'm reading a, an agreement, uh, I, I don't. If I'm answering emails of a general nature, I do. And I listen very broadly. I probably listen to two to three hundred new albums a year, many of them many times. Uh, every That's like one a day almost. Yeah. yeah. And, and over and above that, I listen to catalog material every day. Uh, I, uh, I do a music list every year of my favorite albums uh, from that year and a little write-up about them. I used to write for music publications um, when I had time. So what started, it, it ended up being a bit of a chore but um, where it's ended is that I do this list that goes to many people every year, started as a kind of shopping list, what, what to buy for Christmas. And now it's really just a listening, uh, listening list for people who just want to experience new things and haven't got the time to research what they should be listening to. I listen very, very actively um, and to new stuff and old stuff pretty much every day. That's amazing. Uh, and I wonder how many people there are like you who actually actively search out new music to listen to and new albums. You know, not enough. I think that um, in the 60s and 70s where there was much less released and there was so much less media, I think people were much more active in terms of finding their cultural point and, and investigating it with more detail. 
I think now concentration spans are shorter. There's so much more to choose from. It's difficult to make choices. Uh, the range of media that's available is so much wider. So I don't think people do investigate uh, and read and try to find new stuff as much as they used to. I, I still am on that mission pretty much yeah. every day. And also, just I want you to talk to us about the fact that so much material is available now on the internet and how that affects the people that you are now representing, composers. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point because Samro now has about 20,000 active members. Now, active can range from people who have really big hits in South Africa and, and are, are, are played a lot on radio to people who have just written one or two songs and have registered those and may have only had a few plays. But because there is so much media available, uh, and because jobs are so scarce, people who are musicians look to extract from their craft as much revenue as they can. And um, Samro is an organization which historically has monitored music usage on various media. And people do see it as an opportunity to earn money. So there is an enormous reliance on composer revenues at Samro. And I think that musicians who are struggling do see us at some, uh, in some instances as a kind of funding source of last resort. They haven't got live income. Come to Samro and, and get some advances on the money that you're going to earn. So it, it's true. I think musicians have a much harder time of it now than they used to before. It's much harder to carve out a life uh, as a musician uh, than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Are South African musicians savvy about Samro? That's an interesting question, you know, Richard. Are South African musicians savvy about business? You know, that is a question. And I suppose I could I could use it because because of my love of music. When I would represent a, a musician or a composer or a producer or whatever, I would say, bring me the music. L let me hear what it is you're doing. And they would bring me demos or recordings or whatever it may be. And in so many instances, I have found historically that musicians have not paid enough attention to their own business affairs. And I would say, you know, I, I'm interested in your music. Why aren't you interested in my business? What I'm doing for you, why aren't you taking more interest? And I suppose it has something to do with the creative sensibility. Um, admin is a drag. It's a drag for everybody. And I, I find different, different people are, are, are differently savvy. You know, L Lucky Dubé, uh, who was tragically uh, murdered uh, 10 or 11 years ago, was very savvy about his business uh, activities, incredibly so. He knew about every rand and every dollar and, and, and every piece of music and what it was doing where. And, you know, Brenda Fussy, who was a, another client who uh, took absolutely no interest in her business. She took an interest in her cash position. So it varies from person to person. And I must say, young tech-savvy musicians are more business-savvy than I suppose in my experience when I was representing musicians, I would come across, but certainly not to the levels now that, that I would want to see uh, as young entrepreneurs. Well, your next choice is very different to the previous ones. This is the Russian cellist Mstislav Rostropovich, and this is from the Bach Cello Suite, number one. It's the Prelude. That was Mstislav Rostropovich playing the prelude from the cello suite number one by Johann Sebastian Bach. 
And just a matter of interest, did you hear Yo-Yo Ma when he was in Cape Town? You know, I didn't. I was in Johannesburg at the time, so I missed that concert. I would have really loved to go. Uh, yeah. It was in Kirstenbosch. Yeah. And uh, Kirstenbosch is just such a beautiful venue for, for live music, but I was unable to go. And, and amazingly, I mean, it's fairly esoteric stuff. Cello suites are fairly esoteric in classical music terms, but it was packed. Well, you know, it, it, it might be, you know, I don't know, it, it's certainly more esoteric than violin, I suppose, but, but I just love the warmth of the cello, uh, the range of expression, the difficulty of being able to play pieces like this. I, I can't play um, the cello. Um, my wife is a cello, is her second or third instrument, and I watch her struggle through, you know, the basics. Um, but I do love cello, and... Uh, uh, and I'm not surprised it was full, you know. Yo-Yo Ma is yeah. a, a real entertainer. Yeah. Amazing story, that too. I mean, it was like a once-off experience for South Africans, I think, to go and hear Yo-Yo Ma. I, I don't I suppose think, he'll come back very often. Yeah, and I think he's doing a, a tour where he is playing the cello suites in, I think, on each continent. That's the plan. And, and, and South Africa, Cape Town was his chosen venue for, for this concert. So yeah. I don't think he'll come back. I don't think no. we can afford him. We definitely got. <laughs> you know, it was like uh, many years ago, I did all the work on the three tenors visit to South Africa. I know people often choose their, their music on the show. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was just from a logistical point of view. It, you know, when, when you two come to South Africa, it's a big show, but there are people who are completely uh, comfortable with that kind of staging. But three tenors was a totally different experience. You know, three very, very problematic, difficult people, difficult managers. A difficult show to stage, lots of demands, um, and very expensive at the time. Uh, luckily, the South African purchasing pu public had enough money to be able to sustain that show. But in South Africa, we can't do those shows often. We just uh, don't have the market. And I was uh, lucky enough with my choir and with the orchestra to be part of all of those three tenor visits and Pavarotti. Exactly, uh, I remember fantastic. that. Yeah. yeah, they were they were amazing experiences and big learning curve for us as well but they were very happy with the south african performances of those yeah, orchestras yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. no we really we up well. to scratch yeah now we were talking earlier about politics and music and bob dylan was certainly involved in all of that and causes and here comes tangled up in blue there was bob dylan tangled up in blue you know richard i, I don't know how you choose a bob dylan song you know he He's nearly 80. He released a new album last week called Rough and Rowdy Ways. Some of the songs are quite rowdy. Um, Tangled Up in Blues, kind of mid-period, it comes from Blood on the Tracks, which was a, a very classic breakup record. Less, less political and, and less commentary and, and more about his breakup with his wife at the time. Tangled Up in Blues, just one of the really beautiful songs on that, on that record. But, you know, as I said earlier, I could have chosen 15 Dylan songs, one from the first 15 albums, one from the next 15 albums, and I would be really happy. He's probably my, my favorite singer-songwriter of all times, of all time, based on the depth, uh, the profound nature of his songwriting. You know, um, a lot of people really rate Leonard Cohen as a, as a great uh, singer-songwriter. And when Dylan got the, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature, uh, people asked Leonard Cohen what his view was on that. And he said, well, um, if Bob Dylan is Mount Everest, I'm a pimple on Mount Everest relative to, to Bob Dylan. And that's pretty much what I feel. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan and have been 
probably since my teens of, of Dylan. Yeah. It's interesting because you've talked about Ray Charles or the Beatles or Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan. You could have chosen 15 of any of those. Maybe there's an opening here for a program on Classic 1027. You never well, know. R- really specialist stuff, Richard. And I suppose one of the things about this, uh, this interview of yours is, is what does it do? You know, does it inform listeners about the person or does it bring to the listeners a bigger musical uh, knowledge? Yeah, it uh, definitely does that because yeah. the, the range of music chosen by people on People of Note is way off what we normally play here on the yeah. station. Yeah. So, I mean, the question I suppose I had for you was, what kind of listener response do you get to this program? Do they respond to people's uh, wide-ranging choice of music, or do they respond to the personalities, or do they even bother to listen? No, they do bother to listen. We have quite a good listenership to this program. And in fact, if you, do you have uh, a website? Me personally. You personally? No. No, no. because <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, you know, people like to, to contact you. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not talking about giving out your your email address on on here, but but people do respond to this. And if I say to them, please write to me now, I'll give my email address, which is my name r c o c k at iafrica dot com, Richard r r cock at iafrica dot com, and just give me your opinion about the choice of music here on Mark's program. I don't want you bothering him. You know, it's interesting, Richard, this list that I was telling you about that I do every year. It started, went to nine or ten people at its peak, probably goes to a thousand people. And it is just amazing at how many responses I would get. And it would come, for example, I would send you the list and you would send it to a friend in Canada. The friend in Canada would write to me wouldn't refer you and would say, look, I, I got your list. Please add me for next year. Yeah. And I have connections with people in China, Canada, Germany, Australia, uh, Belgium, all around the world who I've never met who simply use music as a touchstone yeah. to make contact. And, uh, you know, I think there are two universal languages, really, music and soccer. I think if you can talk about soccer or you can talk about music, you can touch most people. Were you ever a sportsman? Not really. <laughs> I, was a fa- I was a failed sportsman. Uh, I failed much worse at sport than I did at music, but no, yeah. no, no. But I'm just thinking at, at, uh, at Queens. Queens. Yeah. No, no, I played. You know, a big sports school. I, I played rugby till I was tackled off the field and, and was so hurt that I switched to hockey. I played soccer and then missed a terribly important penalty in a game, and my brother demoted me from his side. Um, I played squash, probably better at squash, uh, but I was never a great sportsman. Yeah. Well, actually, that uh, rings all sorts of bells with me because I was once smashed off the field in rugby and also turned to hockey after that. Actually, two years in a row, I was damaged. First, I got kicked badly in the stomach, and the next year, I broke my arm, and I thought, no, this is enough now. Yeah, that's yeah. why we both love music. <laughs> we made the <laughs> second choice. So, Joni Mitchell is your next choice, A Case of You. Joni Mitchell, A Case of You. I'm talking to Mark Rosen who is a lawyer by profession, and at the moment he's the CEO of SAMRO, South African Music Rights Organization. But I see your your home address is Cape Town. Yeah, that's right. So how do you manage that? Well, before lockdown, it was a weekly commute. Uh, And... um you know, in my previous job, I worked for eMedia, which ran uh, ETV and ENCA, and I uh, did a lot of commuting to Cape Town, and then they asked me to move there when my kids finished school, which I did, 
and then Samara is here, so um, it's a commute. I obviously don't commute that often, and now in lockdown, I've been locked down in Johannesburg, have been to Cape Town in, recently, um, and it's pretty easy for me to manage. The travel doesn't trouble me. Are there quite a lot of people who do that? The commute, a lot of people. Uh, specifically more Cape Townians, yeah, more and more, and Cape Townians coming to Joburg because really this is the business hub. But the lifestyle is good in Three Anchor Bay. Sure, Cape Town as the mountain has the sea, just has a calmer disposition than Johannesburg. But I do love Joburg and I love being here, and it's great to be back actually. Yeah, because you lived here for a long time. Yeah, I lived here for about thirty years. Yeah. So you have a tender spot for both Cape Town and Joburg, and here's another interesting choice, Paul Simon and Tenderness. Tenderness by Paul Simon, the choice of Mark Rosen. Now here's uh, an interesting person, Paul Simon, who helped in a way to put South African music a bit on the world map. That's right. Look, he's a great songwriter. He can work in the jazz idiom. Um, he can work in world music. Obviously, he's a great folk writer. He uses quite complex chord changes. I, I love his, his songwriting. And Tenderness, interestingly, along with Aretha Franklin and the uh, Ray Charles song, both have, which have gospel leanings. So does Tenderness. Uh, somehow that seemed to creep into my choices for, for this program. Um, he, he was obviously instrumental in uh, the, the Graceland project. Uh, he wrote the music. He pulled a lot of South African musicians in with him. I was fortunate enough to work for a bunch of those South African musicians, uh, dealt with Paul Simon's uh, company and, and him and his management company quite extensively in that time. There was a situation where music and politics was a very traumatic experience. There were people who um, believed it was uh, a, a flagrant contravention of the cultural boycott, that it was appropriation of South African music. There were people who believed it was contributing to put us on the map. You know, we could talk about that all, all evening. It was a very interesting time. But I do think he's a great, great songwriter and to this day putting out really, really interesting music. Just tell us about cultural appropriation for a moment because it's really something that's become forefront in the last few years. Uh, in fashion, in music, in all sorts of fields. Just talk a bit around it. You know, Richard, it's such a difficult area. It really it's difficult is. because there are race, class, um, country, culture issues all involved. Um, and political. It's been, it's been highlighted recently with the Black Lives Matter story. Of too. course, it's, yeah. it, it, it's such a political issue. To what extent? Does everything come from one source? How justifiable is it to simply reference um, the cultures and musics of, of other countries? I am much more relaxed about these sort of things, but it's maybe because I'm older, I've, I've had a lot of political experience, I've read widely. I do understand those battles and I do understand the need to have them, but I do sometimes bemoan and, and regret the extent to which political battles aren't really a good and useful discourse for moving a, a debate forward. And I think cultural appropriation, while interesting, has a place. But sometimes I, I do think those issues are exaggerated beyond uh, their purpose. Well, your next choice brings us right back to home here in South Africa, Johannes Kerkoro, and a piece called Hillbrow. 
you know, again, I could have chosen 15 South African songs, and that would have um, been uh, an interesting selection. But, you know, Kerkoral was a most fascinating guy. He was a really traumatized guy, but he was a very keen observer of life in South Africa. And Hilbrow, lyrically, it's in Afrikaans, but lyrically captured everything that Hilbrow was for me when I arrived in Johannesburg, the record shop, the bookshops, the continental flavor of the suburb, uh, the street life, uh, and the sadness, in a way, of the many people who lived there. Uh, Kerkor himself was a, very, was a sad person. Um, he hanged himself in the very early 2000s, 2001, 2002. He was a client. He wasn't, I wouldn't say a close friend, but uh, more than an acquaintance. Uh, and I, I just love, he, he's got some songs that are so visceral and, and speak so clearly about South Africa, and I think Hilbrow's the best. Hilbrow by Johannes Kerkol, the choice of Mark Rosen, who's my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. And in it, I always talk to someone who is interesting, like Mark Rosen. And as promised earlier, if you want to uh, contact Mark, I suggest you write to me and I'll forward your emails to him. My email address is rcockrcock at iafrica.com. And I'll certainly just forward them on to him and then he can answer them as he likes. But it's uh, wonderful to have you on the program. And we're going to go straight on to your next piece, which is Rhiannon Giddens, a, a piece I certainly haven't heard called Shake Sugary. So she is um, uh, the, the, the lead singer of a small African-American folk group called Carolina Chocolate Drops. This comes from a solo album. It's a, um, a very old um, song about poverty in America. Uh, the thing I really love about it is it, 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 it incorporates so many times, uh, so many styles. It starts with a kind of ragtime guitar, moves into a simple kind of 4-4 four, four beat, and then um, it has a marching band in it. And it, in a way, um, while commenting on poverty, just deals with so many different American styles in one song. And she has just such a superb voice. So this is from one of her solo albums. I really like the song. That was Shake Sugary featuring Rhiannon Giddens. Now, uh, Nina Simone, who is your next choice, is uh, a big-time artist. I love Nina Simone. So, Blues for Mama. Uh, and blues, we were talking earlier on about how um, gospel music and blues and jazz came out of that southern part of America. Um, and I guess is now a world phenomenon. Sure, and Nina Simone is one of those really big voices who helped establish that. So this song's from the late 60s, uh, Before My Baby Just Cares for, you, for Me, which is just a song I, I can't deal with anymore, probably because it's so overplayed. But it's a straight blues song. She is an incredible interpreter of the blues. And um, I, I just think that Nina Simone is a real touchstone for for musicians, struggling musicians, a voice for women and a voice for feminism. And uh, just, I totally love her, especially her older stuff. So it's a real song for the time we're living in now. It really is. Here it comes, Blues for Mama. Blues for Mama, featuring Nina Simone, the choice of Mark Rosen, my guest in People of Note. Mark, you've taken over as CEO of Samro for two years. Uh, Obviously, you've got quite a, 
a job to do there because we've all heard uh, in the news and certainly amongst musicians about the difficulties that Samro has been going through. Uh, can you do it in two years? Can you turn it around? You know, I, I, Richard, I started at the beginning of February and uh, six weeks into the job starting, uh, lockdown came. So I haven't even been in the office for a lot of that time, but I have established close relationships very quickly. Luckily, because of my history in the business, I do know a lot of the, the people involved. But uh, the way I, I, I tell people is that uh, by now, after four months, I would have expected to be on the gravel road and to be able to see the tar road ahead and be able to work to that. But where I am really is I'm still hacking through the bush with a panga hoping to get to the gravel road. Um, and then it'll be a bit of a journey. But I do think I will be able to get it on track within two years. Whether I will be able to get it right and, and get all my indicators into place is doubtful because COVID is going to take a few months out of that process. But it's not difficult to identify what has to be done. It's difficult putting those things into, be pra into practice. So I, I think I'm going to be able to do a lot. I think I've already done a lot. I've, I've made some very big changes very quickly uh, and certainly try to make the organization more responsive, which I will continue to do. Um, so, you know, two years, it's a challenge, but I certainly think when I hand over to whoever will be my successor, uh, they will certainly be inheriting uh, an organization on the tar road uh, with some blue sky ahead. Yeah. Because um, certainly for musicians, it's a really important organization. I think, uh, I don't know whether, does it cover the whole of Southern Africa? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, there are societies in Botswana, but um, it's predominantly South Africa based from a revenue point of view. But we do do collections for other societies in Southern Africa yeah. as well. Because um, African music as a whole, and I see your next choice is called Africa. African music has really developed over the last 20, 30 years in a big way. Sure. Well, ju just before anyone switches off, this is not the Toto version of Africa, which I think is one of the most terrible songs. You talk about cultural appropriation. But, you know, it's a big song and many people love it. And it's a big drinking song and a party song. This song uh, is performed by a guy called Steve Eliveson, who is a jazz guitarist from South Africa. He died only a few months ago. Uh, in obscurity. He only recorded one album that we know of. It was on the German ECM label with a, an American percussionist called Colin Walcott. It's a beautiful African song. It contains all kind of African themes and rhythms uh, and, and, and was part of a growing African um, diaspora of, of music. This was uh, made in America, if I recall correctly. And it's true, African music is starting to take a, a different position on the, on the world stage. But of course, we are in Africa. We're, we're still a continent, we're still a dark continent in terms of cultural recognition by the rest of the world. But, uh, you know, we're certainly a whole lot better off than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Here it comes, Africa. That was Steve Eliasson and Colin Walcott performing Africa. You talked there about someone like Steve uh, dying in obscurity. One of the issues with South African musicians is that we talked about this briefly earlier about the fact that they can't really manage their business affairs properly. And then they do end in dire poverty. What, how can we help that situation? Uh, you know, Richard, that's a very, very good question. Um, many artists die in poverty uh, because they are poverty struck and they don't have enough work. Others die because they didn't take care of things. Um, they earned great money when they were alive, but they spent harder than they earned. 
Um, and it's a mixture of those things. But I think one has to bear in mind that all of these things are a result of a socioeconomic f- fragile environment in which uh, musicians establish themselves in South Africa. You can't ignore those uh, socio-political um, and sociological elements. Uh, I, I remember being part of an initiative to try and get a, a union going. There is a, an attempt now by a guy called Gabby LaRue uh, to get the, um, another trade union going, look after uh, musicians' rights. But, you know, unfortunately, in the creative realm, you're just never going to have the levels of organization and self-discipline. You know, if an artist earns 30,000 rand, do they put money aside for tax? Do they take out an insurance policy? Do they take out an RA and do they have medical aid? Now, for me, as a business guy, that's what you do with your first 30,000 rand. As a musician, you down payment on a car. Now, that's an incredible generalization. Of course, not all musicians do that. But it is a terrible dichotomy. How, how do you look after your money? And education is part of that. And it's one of the things I want to do at Samro is start uh, webinars, seminars, uh, educational um, initiatives whereby we can start trying to inculcate a, a, a culture of, of learning and, and, and responsibility in, in and, the musicians. And discipline, I think, and, is yeah. what you've mentioned it several all, times. All about yeah. discipline, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But oh, it is part of um, education, a wider, a broader education of people into how to run their lives, really. It's a, it's a sort of lifestyle thing. And, of course, lifestyle is a huge element with musicians. Sure. And, and we've seen it over the years. Yeah. And it's about what you have mm. and what you show the world and how you present. It's a very complex situation. Keith Jarrett is your next choice, and this is uh, someone who's really up there. Uh, it, the title just says Part 3 here, so you'll have to explain to us. Sure. It's, uh, it's from a live album recorded part in Paris and part in London, uh, probably about uh, 15 years ago or so. Uh, it's a live album. Uh, this piece, again, has tinges of gospel, um, tinges of blues. Uh, look, Jared's as comfortable as he is playing fusion ja- was playing fusion jazz with Miles Davis, playing solo piano uh, in, in jazz recitals and playing Bach. So he's really one of the most accomplished players and certainly one of my favorite piano players. I think this is a beautiful piece. Keith Jarrett. That was Keith Jarrett performing the choice of Mark Rosen, who's my guest in People of Note. And I see, Mark, we are getting towards the end of the program now. And you've got two more choices. The first of these is Miles Davis with All Blues and then John Coltrane with Giant Steps. Uh, I can see that uh, jazz is um, a big favorite of yours, and you did say you were a a jazz guitarist at one time. Um, Miles Davis is one of the greats, of course. Sure. You know, these pieces, I I would rather just let the songs play than talk about them. But Miles Davis, you know, this piece is from Kind of Blue. Uh, biggest selling jazz album of all time not necessarily my favorite but it's just such a perfect example he starts the piece off with the with the harmon mute on the trumpet and then opens up for beautiful solo he he plays with john coltrane um uh, on the album bill evans on piano it's just a superb rolling slow blues um and then um you know the coltrane song is a is is one of the real rewritings of the jazz tradition uh, Giant Steps is a, just a fabulous and well-known uh, piece. And, um, 
you know, I quite like how this has ended up. It's look, all the jazz at the end. So the fans will have switched, uh, the, the non-fans will have probably switched off. Uh, I don't have much more to say. These songs speak for themselves much yeah. louder than I could. Well, here comes uh, Miles Davis with All Blues. That was Miles Davis with All Blues. And so we've come just about to the end of this interview now. Um, I've been talking to Mark Rosen, who is a lawyer and a lover of music, as you can hear. And who better to have at the head of Samro during these next crucial 18 months or so as we come out of COVID and more musicians than ever are going to be in trouble? I think, well, we're already in trouble. But there's more trouble around the corner, I think, for musicians as we, as more and more people realize that they have no income. And, yeah. and you're going to somehow give people advances on whatever. Well, not only advances. We need to make sure that our distribution mechanisms are, are better. We need to collect faster. We need to persuade broadcasters whose money is also down uh, after COVID to, to pay us uh, quickly and regularly so that we can distribute the money. Uh, it, is a, it is a whole ecosystem, and that ecosystem has been dealt a really crushing blow uh, by COVID, as have, as have many. But, but the music industry has really been hard hit, and uh, a lot of my time, which I never signed up for, is going to be spent doing repair on a period which we never, ever expected would happen. Well, certainly here at Classic 1027, we wish you uh, luck and good fortune with all of that because it's going to be quite a job ahead for you and your staff at SAMRO, who do a fantastic job of, of supporting musicians, certainly in Southern Africa, but also further afield because they collect money for foreign artists as well. So whenever a foreign artist like Miles Davis is played, then a royalty goes to his, uh, his society, society in America. Yeah. That's correct. So that's how it works. And that's what Mark is doing. So thank you for making time to come and talk to us. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank it you, really Richard. has been fantastic. I've enjoyed it, every minute of it. And also the, the new music that we get. And you talked about that, the fact that um, we get a wider range of music here on uh, People of Note than we do on our normal playlist. So thank you for that as well. And uh, I'm a bit disappointed. I, I didn't choose anything that was younger than five years old, which is the Rhiannon <laughs> Giddens. Yeah, I could have chosen songs from last year only. That would have also been fun. That would have been another 15 songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to play out with Giant Steps because that's what we're all going to have to take in as soon as COVID uh, goes away, which is going to be some time, I fear. But Giant Steps are what lie ahead. Thanks, Mark, for spending time with us and telling us something about the giant steps that we're going to have to take. John Coltrane is going to have the final word. So thank you to Mataba Taba Khadebe, who's helped us put this program together, and to all of you at home for listening. And remember, if you want to uh, write to Mark, actually send the email to me, which is rcockrcock at iafrica.com, and I will forward them to him and I'm sure he will then answer them himself but thank you all for listening Giant Steps with John Coltrane takes us to the end of the program